Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Well Nurse Podcast. This is episode 10. Woo-hoo! I'm here with Eric and Caitlin. Hello, everyone. Hello. My name is Slater, and uh, we had a couple fun, exciting things that we did over the week. I know Caitlin and I went to a walrus talk, and Eric went to a movie or a showing on Rizzo's Dolphins. That's correct. We'll, we'll do Eric first because, I don't know. Because we want to hear about it. Yeah, because we, oh. we already know what we saw. <laughs> we heard. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so I actually went to a uh, showing of the of a documentary called Scars. And it's actually about some work uh, a researcher did in the uh, Azores with uh, Rizzo's dolphins. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cool thing about this documentary is I think it's uh, uh, simple enough where someone not even into marine mammals can sit there and really enjoy it because it talks – mainly about the social uh, structure about these animals. And uh, we learned some pretty fascinating facts during this documentary. Um, One thing to make clear is a lot of the facts that they stated uh, in SCARS is based on the Rizzo's dolphins they see around the Azores. They're they're year-round, and they think that possibly, you know, um, that uh, the social interactions they see might possibly only exist with... Uh, that population of animals because one uh, we don't know that much about Rizzo's that's why um, the person actually did this documentary and started researching Rizzo's dolphins in that area so um, one of the few fun facts I know uh, from watching this documentary they're awfully uh, they're pretty long-lived they're pretty slow growing Uh, I do know I want to say the moms actually uh, have the calves next to them for you know a few years where some animals Mm -hmm. just about a year or so with a uh with a uh, Rizzo's dolphins, I believe it could be, I want to recall, she said maybe up to about uh, four years or so. Wow. And, uh, you know, they, they start developing that kind of Rizzo-looking uh, pigment. Usually at, uh, about uh, two years is when they really start getting those uh, scars and that white pigmentation everywhere. Um, also, they showed, like, a lot of... Uh, type of interactions that we see out here but we really didn't know what they what they're all about uh such as animals coming up synchronized sometimes you know in a pair obviously uh or sometimes even uh four or three of them together so that kind of shows like a little bit of a a type of uh, interaction that they can do kind of like hey here my buddy let's uh do some synchronized swimming together um also they do a lot of uh kind of a belly up type of swimming i believe that was a sign of a some dominance also and uh, also another fun fact they do believe that the more white the lighter colored rizzos are usually the males the darker are the females so Mm. they also show (laughs) i was laughing uh i was actually sitting next to uh our buddy chelsea over there and uh they showed a lot of mating footage and i kid you not it went on for about 15 minutes i was like this is kind of inappropriate it's fascinating yeah, so this is a lot of footage. Yeah, we we all know that you know dolphins are uh, in the sexual wise are sometimes pretty you know rough, but oh yeah, they showed you know one poor little female with you know probably a dozen males just going after her for an extended amount of time. So a lot of good footage, a lot of drone underwater footage, and uh, once again they don't know much about rizzos. That's why they do believe that some of the uh, behaviors they saw over there might exclusively be, you know, that population, that culture, you know, over there. So our Monterey Rizzos might not act the same way. Interesting. It's funny because yesterday I saw a, a bigger pot of Rizzos. You know how we normally see like, mm-hmm. you know, 15 or 20. Mm-hmm. Well, yesterday we had a pot of easily over 150 together and they were spy hopping, which was, I mean, like a full on spy hop, you know, straight oh, out of the cool. water and slowly sank back down, which was really mm-hmm. cool. Um, they were breaching all over the place. And then one of them was on their back for like almost three minutes, just, you know, kind of peck slapping. Exactly. Like just like doing the backstroke. For so that I might took a be, picture of it. Yeah, I'll, that, maybe I'll do it as a thumbnail for this one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so did, what, what did they say about that? That might be a sign of, of dominance from okay, the males. I, I yeah. You said that to yeah, me the other day. I just me. called you because I, I called <laughs> Caitlin. I was like, this, this, Rizzo's being yeah. weird. She's like, yeah, they think that maybe. And very quickly, guys, the uh, the um, documentary is called Scars, and the woman who uh, made it and all the you know all the paper per- papers were written by her. Uh, her name's Karen Louise uh, Hartman. If you go online, you'll find numerous publications uh, from her uh, about the sociology and uh, um, you know and the ecology of these animals and uh, 
yeah, I, I'm not sure if this documentary is available anywhere, you know, to the general public yet. We got lucky enough that ACS Los Angeles was presenting it. So you never know. Might come to your city soon. Hopefully. I want to see it. Yeah, yeah it was great, too. guys. Yeah, I think Slater, you actually would enjoy it because of the... Uh, it was really neat, you know, a lot of a lot of drone footage and also some underwater stuff and uh, uh, yeah, pretty unique, unique film. Something that he was talking about the um, staying with the mother for longer than two years. We're in that walrus talk that Caitlin and I were at yesterday. Um, they were staying two years as well, right? And then belugas were staying pretty long as yeah, well. Yeah, so certain odonocetes they have a longer um, lactation period for the calf, and so like. Like, we know that with killer whales. Like, the calves yeah. stay with mom and could be nursing off and on for, in the wild, could be four or five, maybe even more years. Um, and, uh, like, bottlenose dolphin tend to keep a calf with them for two years, and the calf will be nursing still for, for that whole time. Um, but some species of dolphins, or harbor porpoise is actually what her best comparison was. Harbor porpoise, they're weaned after a year, um, so lactation and maternal care is pretty short, and then like bottlenose dolphins could be two years or more. Wow, that's interesting. So basically, most of the odonocetes have a two-year or maybe more uh, yeah. lactation period. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, and then that kind of led her into talking about the two different um, methods of like maternal care in marine mammals. Well, in all ma- in all animals. So there's income breeders and there's capital breeders. The income breeders, and, and this is in regards to like lactation and foraging. So the income breeder does not store a lot of fat on its body like the sea otter. And so it has to constantly eat while caring for young and, and nursing. The capital breeder on the other end of the spectrum, the most extreme is like elephant seals or even um, I think Waddell seals fall into this as well. That. They only... They will stay on the beach the entire time they're lactating and not forage at all. And once the, so like elephant seals only nurse for like 30 days and then that's it. The, the pup is on its own. And what's crazy is when she said that, then she said that then the calf is just on their own sitting on that beach for another 30 days or more. Or 60 days. Yeah, yeah. And then they go out to feed on their own, learn to feed on their own. Yeah. So the elephant seals, like, so they get weaned at a month old and by three months old, They've like basically exhausted all of their blubber store, and so they have to go out and learn how to eat. And what was the reason why they like they fast for those many amount of months? Was there a reason? It just it, for them it makes more sense because they're of the body size and and ability to forage enough to stock up that much fat. That that's just the the most efficient method is to just be on the beach. That seems really short. Like okay, I'm having a baby. It's three months old. Peace. Like, well, it's a month and old I'm leave piece, you on and then I'm leaving you yeah, for month two months. Old, sorry, yeah, 30 days old. And then it's like, peace. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah, and they I'm don't teach them anything. Beach. Yeah, I'm going to leave you on a beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's a, um, actually Dan Costa talked about that um, when he did an elephant seal talk a couple months ago um, for ACS Monterey as well. He kind of, they're trying to figure out now how much is nature versus nurture as far as how do they learn stuff? Because, yeah, they get ditched after 30 days on the beach is there like adults just kind of like waiting around to show them what to do or they just somehow are programmed to know how to find food i want to assume it's like some sort of instinct to where to go but then maybe once they're in that area they see what other ones are doing yeah maybe. it's really weird with mammals it's like some just show like straight out instinct to you know do things but then you got animals like you know another mammal sea otters where they pretty much learn they have to like learn everything, everything from, from mom. mom, you know, yeah. like literally, uh, you know, how to how to groom themselves, how yep. food preferences, breaking up on the food, you know. Um, so, it, yeah, it's kind of weird how some can literally just like pop out mom, go see ya. And then you got, you know, sea otters that like, mom, you need to teach me everything. Yeah. How, do, how do I otter? How do I otter? <laughs> so are penguins income breeders? Or their capital breeders because the mom has they're not you know it's not lactating but they has to go all the way to the ocean find fish and then come back and trade or the or the, or the dad is going into the ocean yeah, getting they, fish coming they, back they kind of fall in between I guess they're birds? no they're I mean they it falls in the middle so because walrus are the same way right they're in the, in between income mm-hmm. and capital breeders is what we ended up finding out um, they do store up some um, fat to then nurse with milk. But then at so after about, it looked like about 200 days, they have to go out and start foraging. They're out of blubber reserves. Um, so penguins, it's like they stock up and then they 
come feed the chick and then they trade off. So they uh, they kind of fall in between, but then they have two parents also caring for the chick, whereas most of the examples it's only the maternal care. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. it's usually yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. So mostly they're talking about lactating mammals, and then a lot of the times for marine mammals, especially, it's only maternal care. All right. Yeah, because I mean I understand the penguins aren't lactating, but they're still having to you know. Live As a off big something. investment. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they stock up on their on their fat layers too for, for holding out and keeping the chick warm during the <laughs> during the cold cold uh, breeding season yeah yeah penguins are pretty pretty good with that even an individual penguin uh, I know for example um, I think maybe most penguins do that but focusing on penguins that I uh, remember working with uh, Medjolanics I know they do a thing where uh, if they're gonna molt um, they know they can't go into the water because they don't have that fetter layer so they'll load up on food you know plump themselves up you know, so they're they're really bright when it comes to budgeting their uh, you know nutrition. Do you recall how many calories a day the walrus eats? 20, okay, twenty-seven thousand. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> so the the original estimate that um, Dr. Noren came up with, because here's the problem with working with species that are kind of in inaccessible areas, is you have to try and make a model, and you may have never seen the animal before. So Dr. Norton had never seen a walrus when she was trying to do this calculation. Um, and so she estimated that a two-year-old, so a, a newly weaned walrus, needs 37,000 kilocalories a day. How many? 37,000. Wow. Which was how many um, clams? Well, they eat eight clams per minute, um, and she assumed they foraged, like, I didn't get it all written down. Like 50% of the time, so yeah, it was like 50 12 per, hours. Yeah, 12 hours of foraging. It was like <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of clams. Um, but then her original estimate was that then a female that's pregnant um, and still nursing her first calf would need like 127,000 calories a day. But that would mean that she's foraging for 24 and a half hours a day. Yeah. And that doesn't work. (laughs) So what she figured out um, after working with walruses in captivity and getting some more observations from um, past pregnant walruses where they sampled the blood of the walrus every week in a captive situation, she was able to figure out that they stock up when they're about to give birth to a calf and so they can then budget themselves to be able to sustain an 80,000 calorie per day energy demand. So they use some of their blubber but then also will forage while nursing a pup. And sometimes the the nursing period is two years so sometimes she's pregnant with the next one while still nursing the first one. That's nuts to me. So something that's um, a problem for these walruses is the ice is obviously melting in the Arctic and they're having to travel further to get food. Or because, go deeper. Yeah, or go deeper to get food. And so they're trying to figure out if it's going to be possible for them to be on land and then traveling out 120 miles to go and feed on this food. Yeah, Some. so that's the other thing. She was trying to calculate their, their energy budget for the day because – that's assuming that they're only like actively swimming for 80% of the day. But then if there's less ice and they're having to travel further between foraging areas and haul out sites, then that means they're going to be swimming almost all day. And so then that affects how much more energy they need to be able to sustain their daily activities. Yeah, that is a crazy I think life one, to live. One of the coolest facts about how she was figuring out the like energy demands for a pregnant female is that they were able to estimate that a female gains 400 pounds in fat during pregnancy to prepare for lactation while on the breeding ground. 400 and then, pounds! And then it was like, with the baby inside her, it was like, what was it? It was almost, um, was it 600 then? Yeah. Because the placenta plus the baby weighed yeah. a couple hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Um and interestingly, walrus are actually not currently listed on the endangered species list. Um, and the 2017 report that went out for consideration actually wasn't very well written, so um, it didn't it didn't make a compelling argument to put them on the list. And so it's being reworked um, to try and better capture the issues that they're having. 
And um, I didn't know this, but USGS, so the U.S. Geological Service Survey, Service, um, is actually responsible for. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I never even heard of that until yesterday. Yeah. So USGS is responsible for sea otters, polar bears, and walrus, and NOAA is responsible for all the other marine mammals. I didn't realize that NOAA they weren't under NOAA's purview. Um, and NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They also oversee the National Marine Fisheries Service within their um, jurisdiction, but USGS is its own entity outside of that. I had no idea that, that those animals fell under their purview. Um, and it is important to the Arctic habitat to kind of figure out what's going on with walrus, and they are important to the ecosystem because just like our local sea otters in Monterey, walrus are a keystone species to the benthic habitat near shore for um, the arctic so when they dig with their tusks in the sediment on the bottom the troughs they leave behind actually have higher species diversity of invertebrates right in the trough compared to sites directly next to the trough um, mm. because they're stirring up the sediment and so that that creates a different um, like perturbance in the ecosystem and it actually ends up being a good thing I still can't believe an animal that big eats clams. Well, their primary food. Yeah, she said that's their primary food, but then there's other invertebrates, or invertebrates like sea stars and little things like yeah. in, the, in the mud. They eat I mean, sea stars? I Is guess. it sea stars? Is that what she said? Not our, what are those other little crustaceans? Just crustaceans. Yeah. She said things yeah. that are in the mud, just like uh, the gray whales, I think. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I say that, and then in the same breath also realize like whales eat the tiniest things too, but it's like the walrus yeah, dig with their tusks and then like yeah. Suck the clams up. <laughs> but then think about, like, um, the manatees, you know? They just eat the grass on the bottom, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but they're not as big as a walrus. I guess they're not as big as a walrus. <laughs> Those walruses are big. And walruses also, like, walk around on land and stuff, too. Whereas manatees, I feel like, are more adapted to be completely in the water streamlined. So if they're just foraging around on seagrass, then whatever, but... Yeah, those mandies are really picky, too. They only go after certain types of vegetation, too. So. Organic java juice yeah. wheatgrass. <laughs> <laughs> and a female, another, um, another interesting fact is females take 12 years to be at their full-grown body size as far as mass goes. So they're heaviest once they're 12 years old. Um, and they actually also have incredibly high digestive efficiency. So even though they eat something very low, that has low calorie value, they're really efficient at using all the nutrients um, in by digestion, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that was a lot of great stuff, the walruses and the rizzos. Um, learned a lot about both of those. Yeah. Stuff, a lot of stuff I didn't know. Yeah, for sure. It was interesting. I didn't, that's also ACS's first time having someone talk about walrus. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Do you guys want to go back on, since we skipped some questions on episode nine, or didn't skip them, but we didn't get to them, do you guys want to go through some of these questions I have up here um, and go through some of that stuff? Sure. Yeah, go for it. All right, let's go with this first one. Um, what are some cool and interesting interactions you guys have seen between cetaceans and other animals, like humpbacks accidentally swallowing birds or things like that? <laughs> um, I've actually seen... Oh, yeah, you actually just showed the video of sea lions, yeah, pretty much bouncing off of humpback whales' heads <laughs> and stuff like that. I haven't personally seen one in the mouth, but there's a few there people in our, photos, flu yeah. in our fleet that actually showed sea lions um, swimming out of the mouth of a humpback and even uh, a pelican. I think Kate, yeah, actually got that photo of that pelican yeah. getting out of a, a humpback whale's mouth. And uh, I've seen them let murs out before, too. Can you guys explain to them that they can't actually swallow a bird or a sea lion down? Because people are always saying on me, yeah. like, oh, my God, are they going to eat that sea lion? So our humpback whales, as big as they are, um, the, you know, the, the opening where the food goes down, I always like to say it's about the size of a grapefruit or a softball. So, and obviously these whales, these humpback whales have, are baleen whales. They've got baleen plates, so they don't have teeth. They can't chew anything up. Uh, so an animal as large as a sea lion will actually, you know, it's impossible for him to actually get it down. His nose would just get yeah. stuck in the yeah. But believe it or not, birds, uh, birds like murs, and I think even some grebes, uh, have been retrieved out of the feces of uh, humpback whales. Oh. That's actually been uh, documented 
uh, up north. So most of our large baleen whales, you know, oh, I didn't know that. Don't so have the, I didn't know that. Don't either. even physically have the capability of uh, swallowing something the size of a uh, sea lion. But oh yeah, a bird. If the uh, you know, believe it or not, yeah, if the whale really wanted to, it can yeah probably just barely get it down. For some, I mean, I don't think they could swallow a pelican, but like yeah, yeah, I mean, smaller birds. But I can actually find the. Uh, um, yeah, I'll try to look for that, that paper. The there is a yeah, there is a paper out there that actually has photos yeah, of the birds, type. birds that are uh, ret- retrieved from the animals' feces. So smaller birds, yeah, interesting. They could I didn't do know that. that. Well, I have seen them let smaller birds out before. Yeah, me too. Um, nothing as small as like an auklet, but I have seen them let a mer out. Um, I think, think I've let them, seen them let shearwaters out too. If they're lunch feeding on a thick school of anchovies and there's a bunch of auklets or mers f- swimming around in there, then I mean it's bound to happen yeah i mean i was amazed that it could even tell that the myrrh was in there because myrrhs are pretty small but i saw the myrrh jump out of the mouth and i was like huh how did you even know that was in there okay guys so i actually uh found the paper i know i a few of my good friends here know i always tell people they don't repeat anything i can't back up with a paper but this paper is called a molecular identification of a seabird remains found in humpback whale feces uh Looks like it was written in uh, 2013. Uh, Trevor Haynes, Matthew Campbell, Janet Nielsen, uh, Andres Lopez. But yeah, you can see these photos of uh, oh, weird. in Alaska that were. Oh, that is bizarre. That, oh, yeah, wow. if you pull up the paper, you'll actually see the photos of the digested the bird. birds. And they're just uh, about a foot long. Yeah, the person put a ruler. They mostly so. look like they were just passed through. Accidents happen. Passed through the <laughs> digestive system. Not, yeah. not actually really. Well, I changed what I've ever told everyone, and I guess they can accidentally swallow smaller birds, but I definitely don't think they can get a pelican down. No, I, I would. I would so. assume not. I mean, they're, yeah. they're big. And We've, seen them. Big. We've yeah. seen them let pelicans out here. Yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting. Well, I wonder also, um, so birds like murs go flightless in the summer um, after they've gotten the chicks off the nest. And so I wonder if that may be a factor too because then there's not so much um, wingspan. And so even if the bird like freaked out and put its wings out, it could still get it down because those flight feathers are not on the bird at that time of the year. Yeah, and I mean, obviously they can't get away from killer whales or anything else. I mean, getting away from killer whales is a big different story, but yeah. Um, they can't fly though. I mean, like it's yeah, they're so, flightless it's like, for okay, part of that. Yeah. The, the rhinoceros auklets can fly, and Eric and I watched that pod of killer whales kick this one auklet around for an hour, and it's like, <laughs> dude, just fly. But he obviously was too full to fly. I mean, I'm guessing. Yeah. But by by the time you know he got kicked once or twice, he He's probably, probably couldn't fly yeah, anymore. Probably so disoriented. Yeah. So that's yeah. another interesting interaction. We see killer whales use birds that are sitting on the surface as target practice. I've seen them kick murs around. Yeah. I've seen them chase auklets around. What else have we seen out here? Well, the sea lion humpback whale interaction is it's something that's becoming more and more regular. More and popular, yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. I mean, the, the, there's some footage I've seen out of Alaska of stellar sea lions doing that with humpback whales, but I've never really seen anything else like it anywhere in the world. Yeah, I've only started seeing it the last two summers that I've been here, and Eric yeah. was with me for one of them, and I think you've been with me for one. But the, I mean, there was one time we were just watching humpbacks feeding, and killer whales came right through their area, mm-hmm. and then another time we had killer whales attacking a sea lion, and then humpbacks came in and got in between the two of that, that those going on. So. I've seen humpbacks herd a raft of sea lions around the other side of our boat when killer whales, so like killer whales were coming from the starboard side, and all these humpbacks and sea lions surfaced right next to the boat on the starboard side. And these two humpbacks escorted all the sea lions to the port side of the boat. They went across the bow and over to the port side of the boat. And it was like, I'd ne- I've never seen anything else like it ever again. Yeah, I think that the killer whales and the humpbacks and um, intervening is a kind of a crazy thing. And it's happening around the world. That's what also is so interesting. It's this increasing phenomenon that's been documented all over the place. Yeah, and what's cool about it is it's not just because of that. It's not just uh, you know marine scientists, marine biologists looking at these humpback whales now. It's you know people say like psychologists and even neurologists mm-hmm. are looking at uh, humpback whales and the way they think. There is some talk about um, the abundance of spindle cells yeah. in the uh, brains of our humpback whales. Spindle cells are usually a uh, type of neuron that actually you think it's in part of the brain that. Feels empathy, love, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sympathy, 
Yeah. It, I think um, I've heard people, maybe you guys even talking about it, that the humpbacks, you can hear them coming into the area, like they'll trumpet blow mm -hmm. and they'll do all sorts of stuff when a predation is going on. And I've seen them do it with gray whales in the area as well. Mm -hmm. And they think that maybe the humpbacks are doing it because they know that they're getting attacked, like their calves get attacked, you know, or they get mm -hmm. attacked um, in other areas. So maybe they're just like, they just hate them all together. I'm sure they don't like them. Yeah, yeah. what you brought up is exactly right. Yeah, there's some people thinking it's not just... It's just neighborhood it's watch. Just, yeah, it's yeah. just an instinct thing. Like, oh, you know, we gotta... We always uh, don't want those guys around, so we gotta just get them out of the area. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting, though. I mean, that footage from Antarctica where the humpback whale is on its back with the sea lion on its belly, and it's got its pec fins up. That was in that Pittman paper that yeah. came out. I mean, to me, that's just that's just unreal. The amount of like evasive behavior the humpback whale did on behalf of the seal yeah. to keep it away from the killer whale. That's I mean, one case that you know, in my opinion, that's that takes some thought process there. Yeah, you know? that's a little bit more. Instinct. That's pretty sophisticated. Yeah. yeah. What Crazy. about other interactions? Oh, but really quickly, guys, I actually um, saved that paper. Uh, so if any of you guys know me, I can forward that to you and keep in mind like i said um the humpbacks aren't purposely ingesting these birds they just happen to get in there so we might be able to find a way cool to pictures. put it on the Podbean site too that's what i was trying to say earlier yeah. it's like there's like yeah that you remember we put the books and stuff yeah and we I should start citing that like you know yeah we may be yeah. able to upload it as a pdf if not we can put the the url yeah just put the url yeah i even have a, a brief little list of papers uh that the of, uh, oh, from that, the Rizzo. Yeah, that uh, that Karen lady uh, wrote. That's just amazing. Like I said, uh, she has um, just dozens of papers out there with really good uh, facts about these animals and their social interactions. I'm trying to think of what other interactions we have. Um, I know we see so much out here. It's hard to pinpoint them right now. <laughs> I mean, humpbacks and sea lions is a cool interaction yeah. in itself. We, I think we. I don't know if we talked about that in other episodes. Or maybe actually in nine, I think we talked about how you can look for the sea lions. Oh, coming up in the yeah, next And is it strictly cetaceans, cetaceans of other animals? Is that what we're well, focusing we said, on? We, we, could, we can expand. Uh, um, molas, I sharks. Have, oftentimes, I think a lot of people just don't even realize that this is an interspecies interaction. Oftentimes when you have a big pot of dolphins, especially if they're foraging, there are sea lions in there too. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a pinniped tagging along with an odonacee. Okay, I know a funny interaction. Whenever you see Pacific white-sided dolphins in Southern California, there is always one sea lion. I swear, I'll put money <laughs> on it right now. There is always a sea lion with Pacific white-sided dolphins. That's funny. And it's and you know how it is down there. There's not very many white-sided. Yeah. It's like smaller groups. And like I think we're 12. usually getting the ones we see in Southern California. There was talk that we're seeing a lot of the pods that frequent Baja. And uh, okay. that's why it's more seasonal for us. It seemed like it was more seasonal for yeah, us, wasn't it, it down just there? Winter, it seemed yeah, like, but yeah. now, now they're <laughs> seeing them a little bit more. But yeah, I, I swear there's always a sea lion with the dolphins. But that's not a weird interaction. Like that happens here almost every day yeah. in Monterey. Yeah. But yeah, for down there, it's funny that yeah, there's I'm trying all, to think. Like, I think I talked about this in another episode. Um, when we were, we were talking about elephant seals, I think. But I had seen. Um, one time I went down to the boat and the slip next to ours was empty and a juvenile elephant seal and a juvenile harbor seal were just like following each other around the harbor. When they're on the beach, they seem pretty standoffish with each other, but these two were just like hanging out. You know the what? They, it was really cute. I've <laughs> seen that many times, which is weird. Now that you bring it up, it might be, I don't know why those two will sometimes be with each, with each other. I mean, we've seen it right there at Hopkins. I've seen it even in uh, over there at Pierdes Blancas. You know, I've seen a harbor seal pop up in the rookery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, what are you doing, buddy? Wrong seal. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah. Just they're just probably cruising the coast, and they're like, well, I'll check out these things, you know. But then when those big males come up on the beach on Hopkins, they cause a yeah. ruckus. All the harbor seals flush off the oh, beach. Oh, they do? Yeah. Last time, so when I walked by there with uh, my wife and her friend, the, the big male elephant seal was at the very top, like right where the green ice plants start. Mm -hmm. He was all the way up. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, there was a... 15 or 20 seals at the bottom. Of really? The some, water, days, yeah. some days they'll have photos and videos where the males are coming ashore and they're just causing yeah, so it's chaos. probably once they get up there, they know they're not going like, to okay, run after good. them and they, they stay lower <laughs> on the beach or something. Yeah. I would guess. And then um, I actually had an intern a couple years ago um, who was trying to answer the question of what is the relationship between albatross, especially black-footed albatross, and killer whales. Um, because in the spring, we do see albatross a lot. I know you guys saw some um, the last few days. Yeah. I saw one last week. 
Um, and like 90% of the time, when you see killer whales, you also see black-footed albatross. Or opposite, when you see the albatross. You yeah, and sometimes albatross are a good indicator that there's killer whales around. Yeah. yeah. So that's another interesting interaction. Do the albatross actually make an effort to follow the killer whales because they know a high-fat food source is coming their way? Or is it just coincidence because they smell the oil? You know, that, a student was trying to answer that question a couple summers ago, and I don't think he really had enough data to make it very conclusive, but it, it's a very high rate of them being in the same place at the same time. Have you guys ever seen northern right whale dolphins without white sides? I have not personally, yeah. but I've heard you reports have? of yeah. them. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it happens. I'm just I've never seen northern right whale dolphins without white sides. Yeah, so. I mean, I, yeah, I've seen times. I think the time you got really mad at me, yeah, it was just them. Yeah. Oh, for the picture? Yeah. yeah <laughs> I'm I like, see, why did I get mad at you? Like, why did I, I lose a follower? Really, really <laughs> big herds of northern right whale dolphins with only a few white sides, but I've never seen one herd of just right whale dolphins, but I've heard other people have seen them. They, uh, yesterday, we were leaving gray whales to go to a big pod of Pacific white sided dolphins that the other captain said they just like scattered out of nowhere. He said there might have been a few northern right whale dolphins, so I was like, please, let's go there, but we ended up. Um, coming across a humpback that was tail slapping. So mm. we didn't get to see the dolphins. The only time I've ever seen like a real serious feeding effort where the whales were next to each other, um, that was two different baleen whales, was fin whales and humpbacks. Actually, it's probably Hello. the only time I've seen fin whales feed with other whales besides occasionally blue whales. But these whales were like in echelon together, mm. like feeding like together on the same bait ball was, I was gonna say because you yeah you, on the all-day trip you were with me when we had the blue whale fin whales and humpbacks yeah but these guys were feeding at the surface and oh, last yeah. last summer surprisingly yeah humpbacks. we had well, actually it was we had a blue and humpback yeah. lunching on curl together last summer really yeah like I mean, I oh them, yes it was when i, I got them all in one area whales. yeah one shot yeah. i had both whales overcast. lunch feeding i was like what <laughs> were you on um the yeah. high spirits uh I one think of the, I was maybe, with you. maybe not. I think I was with you. Because yeah. Kate, Kate was yeah. out there one time, and, and we had the same thing. Humpbacks and blue whales were lunch feeding. Yeah. It was overcast. It was, cra- it was doing these side lunges. And yeah. The blue whale is obviously bigger. Then there was a humpback parallel to it. I was like, this yeah, is Yeah, the parallel thing. Like, yeah. I've seen all three species in the same area feeding on something, yeah. but like these whales were like in surface formation feeding. together, surface feeding. And I've seen fin whales and humpback whales do it. Um, I've seen blue whales surface feed near humpback whales, but not like in parallel in tandem together that was pretty that's my goal is to get from the drone a blue whale and a humpback side by side lunch feeding on a big (laughs) old i'm surprised you didn't have your drone up that day yeah no there was a day that i had it was really foggy yeah it was overcast and i couldn't see the blue i couldn't Mm. it was just like the it was too spotty they were they were random it was so random i couldn't yeah i remember a lot of people were out there um Ron and Jane on that little private boat were out Yeah, there. okay, so that's the exact same day I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yep, it was a good day. Yeah. What about... Have any of you seen... Well, okay, you could do this either way. Sea lions eating sharks or okay. sharks eating sea lions. That's so weird. I was literally <laughs> just yeah. going to say, is seen, this weird? Seen both. <laughs> well, it's weird because people always think like, oh, sharks eat sea lions, which yes, is true. But sea lions... That it's a matter big, of size, can eat really. A smaller shark. <laughs> yep, yeah. I've seen it go both ways. It's, uh, are you big enough to eat or be eaten? I've seen sea lions eat sharks, but I have never actually seen a predation of a shark on a sea lion while out on the boat. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to see uh, sea lions. I saw sea lion back in Southern California eat a thresher shark. That was amazing. Uh, I've also seen him go after um, smooth hound sharks and spiny dogfish, and yeah. then literally just. Two months ago, I finally saw the other way a uh, big white shark go after either a sea lion or an elephant seal, um, just a little bit south of uh, Año Nuevo. So, yeah, seen some some interactions between those animals. Yeah, one that I can think of that I've seen quite often um, in Southern California is sea lions eating thresher sharks. And I, I, I don't know, I feel like I talked about this on one of the podcasts, maybe um, the early one, the, one of the first or second ones. Uh, but yeah, these sea lions. Like a group of males grabbed three or four desert sharks all within like 10 minutes of each other. Like really close um, to each other. And they just, yeah, they ate them. And it was crazy. It was a group of sea lions? <laughs> no, it was like one sea lion had one. Another sea lion came in and he got his own. It oh, was, wow. It must have been like a school of dressers down there or something. Oh, That's weird. intense. Yeah. So one of them was already being eaten. 
And then the next one I got was he brought a fresh one up to surface, and then he tried to like you know throw it a little bit, and then mm-hmm. he, he slipped, and the, the dresser swam down, and then he brought it back up, and then he full on had it by the gills and just went and ripped the gills right out. Like interesting. Oh, and then the cow. thing just like yeah. You know what I just realized, guys, um, that you mentioned that. It seems like when we see our lunch feeding, it's, have you noticed like all the sea lions are about the same age and size? Yeah. They all seem like yeah. they're big ones. I'm just wondering if we have some yeah. pinniped experts here who can like, you know, do they do different age groups, you know, feed together? Are the males bigger, mature males? I mean, more, do they, I know they like yeah, to be on their, I know they like to be on their own, but do they hunt alone too? You know, do they feed alone too? I feel times? like from the drone when I see them, yeah. I feel like it's a lot of males in there. Yeah. Yeah, but they're all also the same size. Yeah. Or so just like, looks like that. I know certain animals are like that. And speaking of sharks, like leopard sharks, someone realized that leopard sharks, when they're in when they're like in schools, there's never more than a foot difference mm. in sizes. You know, they, they kind of stay together. Yeah. Yeah. So what the thresher sharks? Do you know if it's like kind of like the small great whites here at, at Aptos? Or are they? Babies that are in by the beach and then they, yeah. they go off. I don't know enough about threshers. I've seen them eat thresher sharks here in Monterey Bay. Seen them eat them, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm sorry, leopard sharks. The oh, leopard, leopard sharks. Do the leopard sharks grow to a certain size and then leave from the beach, or are they? I feel like they're always at the beach. Yeah, because they're, they're also leopard sharks. Estuaries. Yeah, they're 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 in the shallower areas. Okay. Yeah, they're not going to find them offshore. They eat, right? Yeah. Like they eat yeah. like little crustaceans Surf, and mollusks. Like yeah, don't like you know back home they're always in the back bay, further in the back bay, you know, in the harbors and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, because. We have the great whites here, and they're here because they're juveniles, and they're feeding on like the surf per. I don't know if it's the anchov- it, yeah, juvenile anchovies. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Are they feeding on surf perch yet? N- yeah, they're going after surf perch, young rockfish. Uh, they'll go after rays, uh, small flat fish in the surf line. Yeah, and then they'll move slowly offshore as they get bigger. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I said, uh, the last episode, the, the dentition starts changing about uh, eleven feet or so. You know, broader teeth, more serrations, and. You get that body weight where you can go after the bigger, bigger animals. Yeah, I was going to say they also can thermoregulate a little better because they're bigger in size. They don't have to stay tied to that little pocket of warm water anymore. You know what's something that's kind of cool? Um, the jellyfish blooms that we have here. Mm-hmm. I don't know about them happening. I know they happen in other areas, but this is the first. I mean, I've seen them, you know, in Southern California, like randomly. You see a couple moon jellies or like a random... Um, purple jelly shows up, but really here in Monterey, you get those big, huge blooms of the nettles, the purple striped jellies, or the, the moon jellies. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you get big blooms of um, cross jellies too. Is it the, like the little really, cross tops? Yeah, like really the top? yeah, I've seen ones. a couple of those. Yeah, really yeah. oh, small. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of a cool. Salt. It's not between two species, but it's a cool interaction. Well, see. sometimes we'll see mola mola feeding on them. Oh, yeah. I like it when they miss. Is that mean? Like, I think it's so funny when they miss and they realize and they have to, like, do a hairpin turn to try and get it. All right, guys. So um, pretty much at the end of every episode, we always ask you guys to uh, ask us questions or topics that you would like uh, brought up. And uh, one of our listeners, Antonio, thank you, Antonio, uh, asked a pretty good question. Uh, He wanted to know, in general, uh, these animals, uh, you know, cetaceans, migration routes, patterns, uh, how they learned them and stuff like that in, in general. Um, so most of our cetaceans do migrate. Uh, a lot of them will spend time in a feeding ground or in a breeding ground. And uh, they usually spend more time in their uh, feeding grounds than their breeding grounds. Uh, that's uh, for most species. And what happens is some people like to ask the question, how do they know where to go? You know, is it just instinct? We believe yes, sometimes it is just instinct. Uh, We also, in some cases, think that some of our cetaceans out there are kind of like what I mentioned about otters earlier, are probably learned it from that uh, mother. A parent actually taught them that exact migration route. Um, We also think that some of these animals uh, are mammals, uh, and even other animals out there might have the ability to sense, you know, electromagnetic, uh, electromagnetic fields. Um, obviously, we're mammals, too. Uh, if you talk to an anthropologist, they say, humans, you know, what? we rely so much on maps and other things that we've lost that ability. Um, there's some cultures out there. Uh, for example, there is one uh, island out in the South Pacific where there's people out there who don't have the technology we have. They refer to directions as northwest east south they you know still have that instinct to kind of just feel 
what direction is which. So if you continue using it, you know, you can probably, uh, you know, find your way or feel your, your way around. These people don't say right or left. They say east or west, you know, or whatever direction. So, uh, man, I got to look that up, too. I forgot which uh, island it was. But uh, these people are really good navigators, too, because of that. But um, we have a feeling that some of our animals uh, can sense that. We know that with, uh, for example, like, this is not a cetacean, but letterback sea turtles mm-hmm. uh, have a gland on top of their head. Um, uh, pineal, I might be saying it wrong, pineal or pineal gland that actually uh, when uh, light, sunlight touches it will actually kind of uh, kind of make it produce a hormone that kind of says, hey, I need to go here, I need to go there. Um, so there might be numerous ways these animals are triggered to move. There also still might be numerous ways they know where to go. So every species is a little bit different. Uh, a lot of us like to talk about gray whales when it comes to migrations out there. They have one of the greatest migrations out of all animals out there. Uh, we do think that Caitlin might be able to touch more on this since she worked with one of the uh, gods of gray whales out there. But um, <laughs> we do think that gray whales probably learn from mom uh, mm-hmm. or even it might be semi-visual. I've noticed, especially we brought this up many times during this episode, especially as Californians, have you noticed everywhere that's called a point is usually a good spot to see a gray whale. You know, mm-hmm. do they, you know, look for these points? Is that why they, you know, breach or spy hop at times? We just don't know. So there might be numerous ways certain whales are, are uh, figuring out where to go and when to go to places. Yeah, I think, um, especially for gray whales, because they're such a coastal navigator, I think some of it's sound too. Like hearing the waves crashing on the shoreline. And you guys always say that. I, they really think they can hear the waves that well? Yeah. You can hear everything. Yeah. And then there's other work that's been done around Monterey Bay um, where they were, I think it was Monterey Bay. It's somewhere where there was a deep water crossing just not too far ahead. And they were recording the vocalizations of gray whale mom and calf pairs. And they were vocalizing quite a bit. And then they got to the point to cross over the deep water and they stopped vocalizing. And so there's there's definitely some, there's got to be a maternal component of like, okay, we have to be quiet until we get to the next safe spot. Like we're talking now, but then like it's complete silence once you get over the deep water. And that's to avoid detection by predators. So there may be some teaching and there may yeah. be also some like, Okay, when we're going down, you got to keep it on the left. When we're going up, you got to keep it on the right. And, and a lot that's of, how you do it. Yeah, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of us who are, are a lot of you listeners are probably you know obviously listening because you're into bio, but hormones you know are are triggered by certain environmental signals. You know, the length of day, uh, mm-hmm. the, the daylight. You know, obviously yeah. that triggers these animals. You know, to go okay, hey, it's that time. So yeah. there's numerous things out there that could uh, trigger the start of these migrations. Could mm-hmm. even be temperature. You know, but yeah, so. they say the the prevalence of ice, the daylight, and the temperature is what triggers gray whales to start their migration. And on years where the ice takes a long time to build, the gray whales are usually late for migration because they've gotten so far north feeding. And what is it the um, like the leatherback turtles? You know, they're born on land, they hatch on land on the and they out of the eggs. And they know to go towards the beach. I mean, that's instinct, right? The exact yeah. beach that they were born at. Yeah. yeah. And, then, <laughs> and, then, and then also yeah. that. They know where to go and do this yeah. when they're old enough. So when Scott Benson gave a talk a couple years ago about leatherbacks, and when they um, when they hatch, they're so small that they're basically plankton. They can't swim against the current. So wherever the current pushes them, they develop this – they, like, lay down this chemical signature of that route – and that's the route they will always take the rest of their life to get to wherever they found food and then back to their home beach. That leatherback turtles really do interest me. I, want, oh, yeah. I would love to go see them when they hatch, you know, because it's crazy. It's, I mean, how, how many feet back off the, the shore do you think it is? Have you ever been to an area where they hatch? No, no. not or to a leatherback area. Mm-mm. Yeah, I don't know, but I, I'm pretty sure I heard that it's a decent amount of like it's quite a ways up the space beach. and they got a you know and I, I remember them saying something like in this documentary or i don't know what it was in but about the moon like they knew which way to go towards the the moonlight or something because yeah. some of them are going at night too yeah some some turtle nesting areas like in florida um when i went down to sanibel island they actually asked the residents to turn off all of the municipal lights and all their house lights when it's turtle nesting season so that the turtles will go towards the water because they're following the moonlight and okay, so if I'm not you have crazy. the street lights on they'll go towards the street yeah <laughs> yeah light makes a big, uh, big difference um uh this is not really having anything to do with migration but yes yeah, sand temperature is also uh really important to them too so there's mm-hmm. numerous factors of what beach day uh they show up 
uh, at. But letterbacks, yeah, it's amazing that you ever look at a picture of a letterback, the back of their head, you'll see that little pink spot. Mm -hmm. That pink spot, um, they believe it's kind of like a window for, you know, light to kind of. <laughs> it helps them figure out which yeah, way is up when they're to kind of exposed too. to that, you know, the sunlight exposed to that gland that's under there. Uh, also, another cool thing about that pink spot is uh, it's always a different shape. So it's also used for uh, ID purposes, oh. too, of individuals out there. So, and, oh, go, sorry. Well, those, so those leatherbacks that me and Eric saw because we're pretty cool like that. Whatever, you guys. <laughs> we saw so many. Be quiet. <laughs> but wait, so they migrate from, I mean, here off the West Coast all the way to where? It's really far. Indonesia. Indonesia. Yeah, Indonesia. yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and there's, they, is there another population, too, of them? Or? They have yeah. them in coast. Rica, yeah, there's right? there's numerous ones. Yeah. Uh, you know, we got some. Uh, believe it or not, our population is not doing too hot. The female yeah. count is very low. Uh, the reason why I say female count, because think about folks, um, male sea turtles. It's very, 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 very rare that they come to shore. Uh, you only see that in the Hawaiian Islands. Most other sea turtles, the males never come to shore. So when you're counting turtles on land it's most like it's, you know other, anywhere other than hawaii it's going to be a uh, female usually so the female counts are really low uh, that population that um nest in uh, florida believe it or not is doing i don't want to say very good but decent so i mean yeah. is any animal doing very well <laughs> gray whales are doing yeah. okay i mean I get, yeah i should have said that western gulls <laughs> there is a few animals but a lot of the marine mammals aren't doing that well yeah, but um, this leads us actually to another good thing that we should probably bring up. Um, we're talking about migrations, and you know, just because an animal migrates one way doesn't mean its counterparts are going to be doing the same. Uh, don't forget that some of our animals have different populations; they're going to go to different directions at times. Uh, humpbacks mm -hmm. are, you know, a perfect uh, perfect uh, animal to bring up. Uh, Fourteen different populations, mm -hmm. all with. Uh, different uh, places that they're going to feed and uh, also breed at and different distances to cover. You know what I like to say on the boat, which I think makes people's brains hurt a little bit, is even though whales are always moving from a cold water area to a warm water area, that's their, you know, they're going from high latitude to low latitude um, for feeding and breeding. Um, all of the whales, regardless of the hemisphere, are moving north and south at the same time. <laughs> Because the Southern Hemisphere whales are up near the equator, so they've gone north while our whales are returning like to the feeding ground. Yeah, yeah, and people are like, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, think about it. I mean, they're going for opposite purposes, but they're traveling north and south on the globe at the same time. Yeah, that's pretty interesting way to see it. If you think it. about it, you really could just go from like breeding ground to breeding ground or feeding ground to feeding ground. Actually, Costa Rica, they say they have whales pretty much all year because the d two different ends of the globe have <laughs> breeding grounds there. That's funny. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So yeah, these migration patterns are always varying between the different populations out there. Uh, we've there's there's a few extreme cases where some of these animals have found a, a comfy spot and actually sometimes won't move. Me and Caitlin just read that one paper about the Pacific Coast feeding group gray whales that mm -hmm. actually have one member that what stayed off of Oregon or Washington almost the, the entire yeah. year. <laughs> Because plenty of food. Well, we had humpbacks do that in Monterey Bay the winter of 2014 going into 15. We we saw more humpbacks than gray whales a lot of days in the winter. Were they the younger ones or are there some bigger ones mixed the, in? That year there was quite a few young ones, but there were some full-grown adults that stayed. There was like 25 or 30 humpbacks in the bay all winter. In my first year, 2016, or 17, 17? 16. 16. 16. Yeah, I, I mean, we had them November, December. We had them pretty good into the winter, but then they left. Yeah. But they were, they made it pretty far in the winter and then there, there was, was a couple around. There was one. lunch feeding on the beach late, like. Yeah. Right. And that November, one of them was December, super pregnant too. And I was like, at one point yeah. I was like, this whale needs to leave because like, <laughs> it did a tail throw at one point and we we're like, oh, that whale is for sure pregnant. Also, why are you still here? Like, you gotta go. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, another thing that's kind of a, a generalization, but kind of an accurate and good one is um, these whales will usually feed in a a cooler area uh, cooler areas tend to be uh, more biologically active mm -hmm. uh, there's a number of factors that uh, that are because of that uh, cooler water tends to have more uh, dissolved oxygen at times and uh, because of that life just kind of really um, flourishes you know your plankton is obviously going to be nice and healthy your plankton uh, could be feeding uh, bigger food sources like krill uh, here anchovies so that's obviously whale food so Cooler water tends to be uh, areas where these wells feed. Warmer um, 
is also a good place to give birth and uh, there's also reasons why that is good too because your calf is usually going to be young and skinny so being born in warmth is obviously going to be a lot more comfortable yeah there's also so jim sumich and i talked about this we talk about this quite a bit almost every time i see him we geek out about geek out about this so culture in wales i think plays a big component into your established migration destination for the breeding ground right Mm -hmm. so um with gray whales we see a lot of calves born on the southbound journey now the environment is more favorable temperature wise for a calf to be born pretty much anywhere once you get south of washington i think the water is tolerable enough temperature wise that the calf can survive however um that didn't used to be the case there used to be ice all the way down the coast there during the last glacial maximum which Mm. gray whales lived through Mm -hmm. because they've been on this earth for a long long time (laughs) so of course you're like dang we got to get all the way as far south as we can get where it's warm because we're going to freeze our our tails off so then you also think about the storm surge and the effect of swells on a whale that doesn't is not strong at swimming Um, so even though they could have a calf in monterey bay and probably just hang out here all winter the swells when we get like 20 to 30 foot waves breaking at Point Pinos and a calf that doesn't know how to swim, that's going to be a lot of work for the mom to keep the calf up at the surface. So that's another motivation to be in that shallow water lagoon because you're not subject to that kind of wave action. Yeah. Now that you think, now, now that you mentioned that, you look at um, that Pacific Coast feeding group, I mean, that probably wasn't just lazy whales. That was smart whales going, you know what, there's food down here. And why am I going, going to go past that rougher area mm-hmm. and maybe more you know there might even be more predators up there you mean think about it. we all watch like deadly as cats you know we all know going through that straight right there yeah going through Very that straight right there it's it's rough water you know mm-hmm. and you're gonna take your calf through that to get up to the chukchi you know yeah so maybe that's why some yeah of so it could be predator whales have stayed down <laughs> predator aversion it's the effects of the wave action and the temperature kind of all have compounded but it's also like this cultural agreement of like for tens of thousands of years we've yeah. been going to this spot we all agree on this and i spot. checked my old notes in fact i told slater and we were almost like like what um i think it was like two years ago at the uh southern california marine mammal workshop i think dave weller said that possibly up to 35 percent of gray whale calves are being picked off right there through the bearing strait so <laughs> yeah I, I, I think i've heard that before even yeah. when they're already less... pretty big yeah exactly yeah. so it's like why go through there there's plenty of food back there it's calmer a little warmer let's stay you know towards vancouver or northern california mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i knew there was a percentage i thought it was like 10 or 15 percent that was getting picked off but yeah 30 that's a lot I yeah mean, i couldn't believe it. i was like whoa this last time when we saw jim at the um marine mammal workshop a couple of weeks ago he even was like i don't doubt it if you start seeing gray whales like hanging out in Monterey Bay during breeding season. <laughs> I was like, whoa there. <laughs> Speaking of getting picked off, um, it would be really nice to go watch them get picked off. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, you, but, you but under the ice. Like, I think that's really crazy. I heard that they sit under ice and wait for them and, and, and do some, like, um, what is that? Like, They, like, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I they wish you could all see the most. Magic? They use the ice as like a blind. Yeah, like a surprise. Yeah. yeah, like the surprise I'm out from under. I heard. I don't mean it. This could all be. You know what, dude? If you guys saw my hand signals, you would have got it. <laughs> I was like, magic? What? <laughs> steel, <laughs> steel third base? Anyways, do you guys have any places up there? I heard it's like, uh, there's a name for it. Uh, No. I, Come on, you guys are supposed to be science. Know. I don't know. Bearing straight? No. Uh, like something past. Like it's a... Yes. Scary name they call it. That's true. Uh, Let's try and Google it. Dead Grey Whale Pass. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to see them die. I just want to see. I guess I want to see the predation. I guess you do want to see them die. I mean, you do. No, I'll cry. I I don't want to see them die. I just want to see the predation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I just want to see killer whales next to ice. Leave me alone. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like you always want to see whales with snow in the background. That's like always on your list. I don't know what. I just want to see snow. Is it Unimac Pass? It doesn't sound evil enough. No, it's not. It's like... Something ominous. Yeah. Um, you know what? I don't know, but I'm just saying. We should if somebody go thinks of it, ice. message us. Yeah. Slater always wants to see whales with ice in the background, so if you can help him out with that, let him know. <laughs> hey, you know what? 
this humpback breached just high enough when I was in Iceland that you could get like a snowy peak, <laughs> <laughs> and that made me so happy. So <laughs> I have gray whale flukes with like, um, what is it? What are the mountains behind Orange County? I can't think. Saddleback. Of that. Saddleback. Yes. Yeah, I got <laughs> offshores. Yeah, just put that old picture of offshores in Saddleback. It's like, yeah, they do show up in Orange County. Yeah, it's funny because people like Mark Gerardo got a picture of like he took a picture of the Newport Pier with the snow in the background. Yeah, was yeah. Like, Why are you photoshopping the snow in the background? It's like no, it actually it's snowed. Like coldest February <laughs> ever. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. All right, so yeah, that was a great question on uh, migrations and populations. That we can go so many, go off on so many other subjects. So many about different that routes. Matter. Yeah, well, the, exactly. The interesting stuff too is a lot of it we don't, we still don't know because they use so much. Mm-hmm offshore space yeah like, exactly. i've seen humpback mom and calf pairs more than 100 miles maybe even 200 miles from shore i can't remember especially, exactly where we were especially you know these humpbacks in the pacific there's they're getting so their populations are getting you know pretty pretty hefty and as what john c said what the pacific is pretty much their playground yeah now, it's humpback you know? whale playland yeah they, they more animals obviously they're gonna be more spread out and like some books even say fin whales might shift their breeding location based on prey availability somehow they're able to communicate that to each other and i don't know if that's you know i'm not exactly sure what led them up to that conclusion but they there's no documented fin whale breeding area like blue whales we think they go off the coast of costa rica even though we see them in california but fin whales they don't even have a location listed yeah that the other day when we were at the conference, there's even talk that, you know, we got fins that are just kind of literally just almost resonant to certain areas right now. You know, we do know certain fin whales are just frequenting the Southern California area a lot, a lot. Uh, and I'm actually interested in seeing this summer, you know, when we go a little bit further offshore, if we can get some photos of the fin whales we see and see if they're the ones, you know, also hanging out in Southern California. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. had... One year, I think it was 2016 in the summer, right before Slater got here, we had the most fin whales that any of the skippers, and some of them have been driving boats for over 50 years, more fin whales than we've ever seen before in Monterey yeah. Bay. And we also had a lot of krill early in the season, but also consistent into the fall. And we we don't really know what happened. And yeah, was I think Slater was with crazy. me that one all day. Didn't we have like seven or nine fin whales? We had days where like we had twenty fin whales and yeah. five humpbacks. Wait, let me go back to something. Did you hear that? Right before I got here, <laughs> is it like right before I got here? The sperm whales. Right, right before, before you I got, got here, here, the beaked whales. That was up. literally right before you got here with the sperm whale. No, that yeah. was like a month before. I see. I've had days in Newport where we have like five yeah. or six. You know, but yeah. I mean, um, some nights we had 15 to 20 fin whales and like 10, 5 to 10 humpbacks. It was just insane. What was it? Last, not this last one. So 2017, October, we had the like 50 blue whales show up. Yeah, actually, know, you guys. I mean, it was, oh, that was yeah, last November. Yeah. Yeah. And November. then November. you guys November. Yeah, November, saw them right. through Thanksgiving. We saw them through Thanksgiving, too, 2017. I mean, that was a that lot. Was, it was like a lake. Blue whale. Yeah, yeah. there. You were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had Nathan Kelly was on the boat and he shot the mm-hmm. white side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Blue whales, white sides, calm water. Yeah, we had blue whales all every month of the year in 2017, I think, almost. Yeah, we had a lot of blue whales. That was, that was yeah, very interesting to have that many whales that late. Yeah. Uh, as I uh, always say, um, hey, I got a paper for you guys. I was just briefly talk, talking to Caitlin about uh, the fin whales that kind of stick off Southern California. If you guys are interested in looking for that. Uh, paper, a group called uh, Marine Ecology and uh, Telemetry Research. Uh, they actually uh, released a uh, poster, and I think a paper also, on those fin whales that are frequenting uh, Southern California. I know we got a lot of listeners from that area, so they might be interested to know that, uh, yeah, you might be seeing the same uh, fin whales over and over again. So that famous whale, Fluky, <laughs> he might be someone that uh, stays around there, and it seems like he, he really does, or she because uh, we see that whale almost year after year. You know, at ACS, we also had kind of a cool insight into, like, winter habitat use of bowhead whales um, from that one talk where they put a hydrophone in an area where they're like, oh, we don't know if there's bowhead whales here. And then they had, like, continuous bowhead whale song for, like, months. Wait, they sing too? 
Yeah. They no, got yeah. cool vocalization. Yeah, they really yeah, I, mean, I, I know they vocalize, but they sing like humpbacks. Yeah, so then they were like, wow, this is actually a winter habitat for bowhead whales. We had no idea because we can never survey here in the winter time. And then the hydrophone actually is the reason why they even knew that information. What area is this again? I, f- oh, I forget. Let me find my notes. Yeah, I'd like to go visit. You know they're hopefully they're still there. I can't get to. I know. Hopefully they're still there when I get there. <laughs> Gosh, I look at these places like that. Somehow people get they're like crazy remote. You know, like Paul Nicklin gets there, and I'm just like, yeah, this how is how are you getting up this there? This is Kate Stafford's work. Um, let's see here. I don't think I listed the exact area where they deployed the hydrophone. Um, but they really weren't expecting to hear anything, and they heard mating calls for very consistent and very clear for weeks at a time, which wow. was really fascinating that they just like unlocked this major secret about and we where do the have different, whales were. different populations of uh, uh, of bowheads up there, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's some that I know aren't doing too hot. Yeah, and the same thing with um, the different populations of right whales. Um, they don't overlap habitat in the winter, as far as we know. Um, definitely not in the Atlantic because they do document them pretty well off the coast of Florida. They're um, seeing a lot this year. Yeah, they're having That's lots good. of calves this year, which is good. Um, I don't know. They do a lot of aerial surveys for right whales, so they must n- migrate fairly close to shore. But the last footage I saw was, yeah, I want to say it was about just 10 miles offshore or something like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's with a calf, but even when they're traveling, like humpback whales often are breeding often but not always breeding near shore um but they could be hundreds of miles offshore while they're making the trek like i think about some of the um north atlantic humpbacks they could be a couple hundred miles offshore but then maybe they're breeding you know close to the dominican republic um or they're out at silver bank and the humpback whales from alaska going down to hawaii they're usually breeding near shore but they've crossed the entire open ocean from alaska to hawaii or taken some kind of like zigzag route head inland and then head back out all right well that is a interesting question that we got on the migratory patterns and jerry's still out on a lot of a lot of animals we, yeah. we still mean, don't know for a lot of them like blue whales i mean they kind of just go where the food goes right yeah we sort of yeah. speculate they there's like another small upwelling zone off the coast of costa rica where there is enough food there for them to aggregate um Oh, that's a good documentary. If you guys want to watch a documentary, um, it's on YouTube. It's called The Kingdom of the Blue Whale. Yeah, Kingdom of the Blue Whale is great. It's actually, it was a a Nat Geo show, uh, and it features uh, John Kalmakidis from um, from Cascadia. Yeah, and he literally follows the whales, you know, all the way down there to the dome. Yeah, and that's where they think that the blue, that, they think the blue whales are giving birth down near the Costa Rican domes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and one thing that they learned, as, as Caitlin just said, you know, we always think of, our humpbacks and blue whales, you know, um, feeding up here, breeding down there. But blues, it turns out, they're eating year-round. Well, there's kind of like an upper limit of when you can be fasting for that many months, and blue whales are beyond that. They're too big. They can't fast for four months. It's not possible because of their size. Yeah. Sperm whales are another one that the males migrate. The females tend to stay towards the equatorial regions, but the males will go all the way up towards, like, um, the polar latitudes like Alaska and, and I don't know if they've been documented further north than that but they you know steal sablefish off the lines we're literally talking about like three or four species and there's so many more I know <laughs> yeah and there may be seasonal patterns that you may not necessarily call migration for like dolphins like you're more likely exactly. to encounter them in this area of their range during this time of year but I don't know if you could call that migration necessarily it's not really yeah. tied to breeding I've always wondered about that like for example when we always get the question here in monterey bay you know when's killer whale season and it's like uh, i don't know if you can really call it season it's <laughs> more you guys food told me driven to say one or two times a month which is was yeah. true until this flipping summer <laughs> <laughs> well it was so rough i bet they blew by us and we're just I like mean, they're here we just miss them but yeah. Uh, yeah like one or two times a month and then october november you, you, you always tell me that maybe it's because the elephant seals are coming back mm-hmm. to the rookeries. Mm-hmm. They kind of come in near there, which we didn't have this year. And then um, <laughs> April, May, the gray whales come up, the mom babies, and the killer it's whales more come like then. one or two times a week then, where it's more common. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, yeah, it's food technically driven, every though. month of the year, you can see an orca here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it's not really, yeah, migrant. They just travel up and down the coast. I mean, it's the same thing with Rizzo's. Right? You're more likely hundred plus to miles a day of moving around. Yeah, you know? it's more. You're more likely to see the Rizzo's when there's a lot of squid around, and then if there's not a lot of squid, like where do they go? Do they just go further offshore? Do they go somewhere else? We we don't really know. I just want to hang out with them for a day. <laughs> Rizzo's or any of them, yeah. like <laughs> like a, like while they're going somewhere. Like I just want to see where they go. Yeah, and how they figure it out. I mean, a lot of times they're probably just going, you know, fifty down, fifty miles down the coast, like the humpback or something, you know, when they leave, but. Other ones like the dolphins, where are they going when they go straight offshore? Or like you know how many times you've said you've followed the killer whales into Carmel Canyon at Carmel mm-hmm. Bay, and then they go outshore and then they're gone. And yeah. I've lost them there a couple times too. Yeah, yeah. Where do they go? They just disappear. There's out like of the, this the ocean. interesting like three way ridge down there, and like if they're following the ridge, first of all, you have three options. So now you're one boat, you don't know where to go. And then if they're not following the ridge, then you have no reference of where to even look for them. Yeah. Well, you know what, you guys? What? This was one hour and five minutes. Wow. So I I, I think we should probably end it here because people are going to, like, give up halfway through this one. Yeah. So long. (laughs) All right. Let's call it. Yeah. Keep sending us questions, though, because that's some great stuff that you guys guys are asking us. Yeah. Great questions that I can see. We can really talk at length about some of them and a lot of these questions even if we don't know it's cool for us to, it gives us ideas what to look mm-hmm. up and mm-hmm. we get to learn more too so yeah. i learn a lot from these podcasts that's for yeah. sure so um thank you so much for all those questions and comments and feedback um, make sure you guys are following us on instagram at mm-hmm. the well nerds and then we're trying to get our youtube set up so that they'll all be on there as well yes and uh yeah we'll try to add some of those um, resources that eric has onto the podbean website And yeah, thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys.